Well, welcome to Mission in 5, the podcast, where we ask a handful of questions to ministry practitioners to learn more about who they are and where they see God moving in their community. I'm your host, Greg Namula, and every week through my work with the American Baptist Churches in Nebraska and my ongoing writing projects, I get to partner with churches and ministry leaders. I'm always amazed at the many and varied ways that God works in our individual communities and when multiple churches come together for mission and ministry. So, that's the purpose of this podcast, to share the many things that God is doing and to meet some of the people participating in God's mission in Nebraska, across the country, and around the world. My guest today is the Reverend Dr. Ryan Burge, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Graduate Coordinator at Eastern Illinois University. He teaches a variety of topics related to the interactions between religiosity and political behavior in America. His research and statistical charts have been used by a variety of major media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, NBC, Reuters, Christianity Today, Religious News Service, and about a dozen others. Ryan is also the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, Illinois, an American Baptist congregation. Finally, Ryan is also the author of the recently published book, The Nuns, where they come from, who they are, and where they are going. And in this book, he details the complex picture of the growing number of Americans who claim no religious affiliation in surveys. Now, I strongly encourage everyone to purchase and read this book immediately. It is an amazingly useful resource to our churches. Ryan and I had a great conversation, and I enjoyed learning how much we have in common. He is a big baseball fan. We have similar childhood church experiences and calls to ministry. And we both encourage church leaders in being a faithful presence in their community. Learn more about Ryan Burge by visiting his website, ryanburge.net. That's R-Y-A-N-B-U-R-G-E.net. And check out the show notes for links to Ryan's website, social media, and books. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Professor and Pastor Ryan Burge. Uh, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks, Greg, for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's just jump right in. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Uh, my name is Ryan Burge. I am an assistant professor of political science, like you said, at Eastern Illinois University. I'm also a pastor of First Baptist Church in Mount Vernon, Illinois. I've been here be 15 years in October, longest serving pastor in the history of the church. It started in 1868. We have about 15 people on a good Sunday. Uh, I am the husband to Jackie. My wife and I have been married for 13 and a half years. We've been together for almost 20 years. Um, and we have two little boys, uh, Holden, who is nine, and Reed, who will be seven in a couple weeks. Uh, and, uh, I think that's, that's all I do. I mean, it feels like <laughs> there should be more there. I don't know. Now you got a lot going on. You're, you're teaching classes. What kind of classes do you teach? Uh, American politics, uh, and research methodology is sort of my areas now. Um, so like the presidency Congress, um, I'm teaching a class on re- religion and politics in the spring, which is always fun. It's actually hard to teach that class because it's like you love it so much. You want to cover all the material, but you don't have enough time, you know, because right. you only have one semester. Uh, but, you know, graduate level and undergraduate, but usually upper division now. I'm not teaching a lot of intro to American government anymore. I used to teach that a lot. I love teaching that class, but, you know, we kind of need me more at the higher levels now. But so I teach usually junior seniors and then graduate students methodology and American politics. All right. Very good. So do you have any hobbies, interests, things you're not doing when you're not teaching 47 classes and raising a family and leading a church and, you know, those uh, sort of things? I don't know. I think work is my hobby at this point, like writing. Like I really do. Like I, I these people were like, oh, you know, like you should take a break from work. Like I'm the opposite. Like if I take a break from work, I get depressed. 
Like, I feel like I need to be productive every single day. So like vacationing is really hard for me. So I don't have a, like making graphs are my hobby, I guess. Like that's sort of my therapy in some odd way, which is also part of my work, but it also, it does really feel like a hobby because I do it. Like I'm trying to get better at it. I'm learning about color theory and, you know, visual design and all these kind of things. So in some ways it becomes a hobby, but, uh, the other thing is my kids were playing a lot of baseball right now. So I really enjoy, um, kind of halfway coaching them. I'm not officially a coach, which I'm really (laughs) glad to be, but you know, going out there, hitting the ball with them, throwing up a couple of pitches and being a very avid, active, you know, coaching daddy, dad fan from the sidelines has been a lot of fun. I love baseball. Generally, I think it's a great sport from a statistician standpoint as well, which is, I think, you know, kind of, of overlays with everything else I do. But I just love, I love baseball. We're in baseball season. So yeah. that's really, I think, kind of my hobbies mm-hmm. are just, I play video games with my kids a lot. I was okay. doing that earlier today. I think that's so much fun because it's just good to be with them on their level. So that's kind of what I do in my spare time when I'm not doing the other stuff. Um, who's your team? Who do you follow for? Oh, baseball? the Cardinals, without a doubt. Yeah, I grew up an hour east of St. Louis, um, in a deep, deep Cardinal family. You know, going back to my grandparents, I remember watching Cardinal games at their house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I married into a Cubs family. My father-in-law actually at some at one point had had season tickets to Wrigley Field. Wow. Um, so there was a period of time where I actually saw more games at Wrigley than I did at Bush, um, which has dissipated now. Recently, we're actually going to a game in a couple of weeks. My wife and I are, but she's. She's a Cubs fan. My mother-in-law's a Cubs fan. My father-in-law's a Cubs fan. So it's really weird, you know, some holiday, especially during playoff time, you right. know, the Cardinals are in and the Cubs aren't. But no, diehard Cubs fan or Cardinals fan will be. Both my kids are Cardinals fans because I taught them they, they should back a winner. Um, I know you're a, <laughs> you're a Red Sox fan, and I'm not a huge fan of the Red Sox because 2004, um, that yes. was probably the best team in my lifetime. Uh, we had Pools, Roland, and Edmonds really in their prime right. uh, and won 105 games that year. And then we get to – we get to the World Series and get blanked four games to none um, because the the Red Sox were on a mission from God to finally break the curse. So it was, uh, it was a divine engagement for sure. And then they did it again in 2013. That is right. So 16. that one doesn't hurt as bad because that team wasn't as good in 2013. <laughs> it was good, but not like great. What's funny is the 014 was a lot better. The 016 that won the World Series for the Cardinals yeah. was awful. Like legitimately was not a good team. <laughs> they won 83 games in the regular season. I mean, right. none of those players were, were besides pools for any good at all. It just, everything right. clicked at the right time and they won it out, but we've had better teams that have lost. And then, you know, it's so funny how baseball works. That's yeah. why I love it. Cause it's, it's in some ways it's random, but in some ways it's not. And the playoffs are just random. You never know what's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. I mean, as a statistician, you know, I mean, everything reverts back to the mean at some point in baseball and uh, it's, you guys, you have people that are spiking really good during playoffs and you know, They'll also slump, and those things kind of – you just never know. Yep. Small sample size, man. That's, That's all your, right. your job as a GM is just to get your team to the playoffs every year and just roll the dice and, and yep. hope you get it. Most, most time you won't win it, but every once in a while you will. And so I think that's why I love – it's also easy to use it to teach statistics too. Right. Because you talk about like if you take 10 at-bats and you have you hit eight home runs, you're the greatest hitter in the history of baseball – well, no, because you only had 10 at bats, right? Or you strike out 10 times or are you the worst hitter? Probably not, you know? So you can talk about sample size and reversion of the mean. It's actually a really good way, especially if people are aware of baseball. It's sure. a really good sport to teach statistical principles too. That's cool. That's cool. So uh, tell us a little bit how you came to be a professor, a pastor. Like how did, how did you get called into these sort of vocations? Um, so the, 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 I'll start with the pastor at part first. Okay. Um, sure. that was basically, I needed a job to be dead honest <laughs> with you. Um, I'm, I'm not going to like give me like Isaiah chapter six, high minded. Here I am, Lord, send me, sure. you know, kind of, kind of explanation. Uh, you know, 
I was, it, well, it was this, uh, my sophomore year at college and I was looking to get a job for the summer. And I used, I worked at Walmart the previous summer mm-hmm. and they called me up and said, we only have one job for you. It's overnights. And I said, I don't want to work overnight. Mm-hmm. Although the summer before that I worked 5am to 1pm, which is you know pretty close to overnight in yeah. a lot of ways. Um, but I was like, I don't want to work overnight. So I was really scrambling, looking for a job. And I was uh, in a youth ministry class, philosophy youth ministry class with uh, yeah. a guy named Bruce Cromwell, who's a, who's a Methodist, but from Centralia, Illinois. And he said, I was in a meeting, you know, like a ministerial alliance meeting or something like that with, with ministers in Centralia. And one of the pastors said they're looking for a youth ministry intern for the summer for like a three month summer deal yeah. at First Baptist Church of Centralia. And I said, well, pff, well, you know, let's, I was really active in youth group as a kid. Like I, you sure. know, playing trips and did all that kind of stuff and spoke a little bit, uh, led Bible studies. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is probably, you know, this is something I can try out. Right. So mm-hmm. I uh, applied for that job and I got interviewed and I got the job at 20 years old. I got hired at that church. And then I was there for three months and that three months turned into three years because wow. it, uh, apparently it, it worked out well for them and for me. So I did that all the way through um, you know, my, my uh, junior year and senior year of college. And then the year between um, undergrad and grad, I also did that. Uh, and then I, then I stopped doing that uh, just because it kind of being a youth pastor is hard. Uh, yeah. To be honest with you, I think it's the hardest job in ministry. In in many ways, it's harder than being a pastor because stuff rolls downhill. You know, all the complaints and all this stuff rolls downhill. Yeah. And plus, it's teenagers, so that's really hard. Um, but then I was going to go to grad school, and I what I needed a job in grad school to pay the bills as well. So I contacted our area minister and said, "Hey, do you have any jobs in the Carbondale area of Southern Illinois?" And he said, "Yeah, I've got this little church that you might be interested in." Um, and I interviewed with them, and they gave me a job. And I was twenty three years old, and I became the pastor of this little, you know, 30 person congregation uh, called Warder Street Baptist Church. And I was there for a year and that we all started figuring out pretty quickly that I wasn't a great fit for that congregation um, yeah. for a whole bunch of reasons. Okay. So it lasted a year and then it kind of, we got to the point where we're like, you know what, let's just not do this anymore. Um, and I also got an assistantship at SIU in grad school. So I didn't really have, felt like I was going to have time to do both. Sure. Well, so I quit that. And then um, I, I just did pulpit supply. Uh, you know, I put my name on the list for pulpit supply and a little church in Mount Vernon called me and said, Hey, we need a pulpit supply person for, you know, this Sunday. And I said, okay, fine. Then they called me back that next Tuesday and said, would you come back next Sunday? And I said, okay, that's fine. So I preached two Sundays in a row and they called me back the next Tuesday and said, Hey, do you want to preach every Sunday? You want to, you want to become our <laughs> interim pastor? And I really, you know, I, I really didn't think I was going, I thought that was it, right? Mm-hmm. Like my, my ministry career was basically, I was going to do pulpit supply a little bit and just the rest of it just kind of not, you know, whatever. Okay. And then uh, somehow I've been there for 15 years now as the pastor of First Baptist Church. And I say like that they basically kept me around because they didn't have any other options. Um, <laughs> at some point, how many people are going to come pastor a, a little church of, you know, at that point, 50 people, but now like 20, 15, 20 people. Um, and I've been, like I said, I've been there for 15 years. So in total, I've been in, in American Baptist ministry for like 19, almost 19 years now. Oh. Um, so that's, that's how it's all sort of like, I just, it's one thing I kind of fell into the next thing, right? Sure. It wasn't, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a moment. I didn't have like a calling moment, you know, like, yeah. like the prophets had or, or, um, you know, like even Jesus with, with, you know, the heavens opening up. I didn't have any of that stuff. It was like, <laughs> I needed a job and they wanted me to preach and they kind of like what I was saying. Yeah. So I just kept doing it. Um, I think cool. I'm probably the worst pastor in the history of the world. And I tell everyone all that all the time. Um, but they keep me around and it's been it's been one of the great joys of my life. I'll That's say cool. that to be pastor. Um, the professorship thing is um, interesting story. Uh, I, I wanted to go to grad school because I wanted to go back to school after I got out mm-hmm. of undergrad because I just missed all that stuff. I missed okay. the college experience, the educational world, the, the calendar, the schedules. All I loved all that stuff. And I wanted to go right. back. 
So I applied to a bunch of different places. Um, I got rejected at really good political science departments. And then essentially I said, I'm going to go anywhere. <laughs> so I applied anywhere. And SIU Carbondale gave me admission like in June, uh, okay. which was really stupid looking back on it now. Like I shouldn't have done that. Um, and so, like I said, my first year, I was just a master's student. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I did two years there, got my thesis done. They got me on a graduate assistantship and they said, hey, you're pretty good at this stuff. Why don't we have you come, you know, be a PhD student and continue on and finish your PhD? And I was like, well, I looked around at my life and go, what else am I doing? Sure. Okay. So that was in 2007. I, I started continuing on as a PhD student and I defended my dissertation in 2011. And I, you know, I don't want to go into the whole story of like my EIU history, but I got fired there twice and rehired twice because uh, <laughs> of budget cuts and things like that. I thought I was yeah. going to leave. Uh, yeah. academia at one point I actually had another job offer making a ton more money in the private sector to leave academia right. uh, and move to a big city. Uh, but for whatever reason, God had a plan for me and that was to stay in academia. And I stayed and then I got in the tenure track in August of 2019. And hopefully God willing, uh, I'll be tenured in about two years. I'll be oh, you know, yeah. a tenured associate professor. So it's great. Yeah. My, uh, it's so funny. Your, your call to ministry is kind of just kind of falling into it, saying yes to one thing after another. My my first uh, church was very, very similar. Freshman year of college, I'm, I'm home on summer, helping out with a summer camp uh, with some students and a pastor who's got students there uh, says, hey, do you want to come be our youth pastor? Because I'm just helping at the camp just, just mm-hmm. for the summer. And it was a summer internship that lasted a year. So I did it my whole school my old sophomore year is when I met my wife, same kind of time in my life. And then um, did another small church, my, my senior year of college. And uh, anyways, just sort, sort of that sort of thing happened for me as well. Uh, kind of felt confirmed in, in my gifting though, you know, in seminary. Uh, I went to Baylor uh, for my seminary at Truett Seminary and um, did a, a Texas church there, but ended up in American Baptist life because uh, the pastor in North Platte had connections with Baylor. And so when they were looking for a, uh, a youth pastor to come to Nebraska, that's kind of how I became American Baptist and been here ever since um, 2007. So I've been in the region since then. So we have, Greg, we have parallel lives. Man, I, I was raised Southern Baptist. Like oh, yeah. Hardcore, oh, yeah. Hardcore evangelical, like mm-hmm. in the 90s, which was like oh, looking yeah, back of on course. It, That was like the epiphany of like oh man like it was but it's so weird like the 1990 like like, that's part of like what i do what i do is like trying to figure out how weird you know like our growing up was because gosh it was weird like purity culture was like at its peak in the 90s oh gosh yeah and like christian music was at its peak in the 90s and i feel like the christian subculture was like the strongest it ever was yeah with like the t-shirts and the bracelets and the bookstores and the you know all that stuff like was just P and then the 1990s was also like contract with America with Newt Gingrich and right. like abortion became like a, like this huge big issue. And then the Bill Clinton thing happened and that was right. like a big moral crisis. And, you know, it's like, and, and by televangelism was still huge, mm-hmm. you know, in the nineties, uh, you know, from Jim Baker gone by that point, but we still right. had, you know, Falwell and Robertson and all this. It's like the nineties were such a weird spot in evangelicalism where we were transitioning towards from like, we were a default Christian country to we're right. be- becoming a less default Christian country pretty rapidly in the 90s. But evangelicalism hit its peak in 1993, where 30% of Americans said they were evangelical. Today, it's like 23% or so. So like, you know, like it was just such a weird time to grow up. And and then I went to a, a free Methodist undergrad, mm-hmm. which, you know, taught, taught the theology department, not from like the literalist perspective, but from like the critical, you know, like the German critical theory, you know, perspective sure. of the Bible. 
And I was like, well, I can't go back now. Thanks guys. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you've wrecked that whole understanding Absolutely. I had as a kid. But the, th the, the thing is like, I don't, I, I never say I'm an evangelical apologist, but I'm evangelical sympathetic, right? Yeah. More so than a lot of my, you know, colleagues, especially because I at least understood that worldview from being a part of that culture for a long time. I miss that culture of, you know, the 1990s evangelicals where everything made sense. Yeah. Right? And there was yeah. right and there was wrong and you understood why things were happening and there were answers to all your questions. Like I miss that sense of like coziness, I guess you want to call it, or like, right. you know, like being tucked in by like by the theology of the whole thing. So, you know, I, I do think there's, a, you know, I do think there's a lot of negative things about evangelicalism, especially over the last 20 years. Sure. But I, but I do miss it. You know, I do miss it in some weird way. And I also, one of the big grief, like way, ways I grieve in my life is thinking I'll never be that way again. Yeah. Like I cannot go back to that old, old way of thinking. My brain just doesn't work like that anymore. And that's so wild. You're, you're absolutely right. I've had a lot of that same journey myself. And I remember I, I took it all apart in seminary because I'd learned some things I'd never heard of before, you know, and uh, kind of same thing. There was just some, some of that certainty and um that that coziness you know is, is a great term and and i'm stuck in this constantly always asking questions always a little bit uncomfortable always kind of pushing um asking questions and so there's a sense of where you never feel like you're you're landing anymore you're always kind of falling a little bit and so uh if only things could be that certain all the time uh it would be so much more comfortable but i think there's something to that um, that's part of the journey. You're never really comfortable. Um, cause that's just part of the experience. So, yeah. and I'm, you know, my, I'm writing a book right now, but the book I'm going to write after this book is going to be more of like a memoir with the yeah. data sort of woven through it. Well, that's like cool. talking about like how my story, like, I guess our story talking about now, yeah. our story is part of the bigger narrative of what's happened to American Christianity over mm -hmm. the last like 40 years or so. And like, I always say, if I was born 20 years younger, you know, I was 20 years older than I am right now, I would be safely ensconced in the mainline tradition, right? But if I was born 20 years later than what I was, I'd be a nun for sure. Like I, I have no doubt in my mind that I would not be in a church at all if I was born, let's say in 1995 instead of 1982 because right. of how much culture changed. And we were we were lucky enough to find a tradition that the declining mainline, which is just has a sliver left of what it used to be, by the way. I right. mean, the main line was 30% of America in 1976 and today they're 10% of America. Wow. Right. Yeah. I mean like, so the, 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 if like I said, when I said I was, if I was 20 years older, I would have found a huge faith family in the main line. Cause they were still 20, 25% of the population at that yeah. point. But now someone who's in my spot, who's 20 years younger is going to try to find a tradition that is basically dying by the day and literally dying off by the day. Cause most right. people in the main line are 60 years and older right. and there's none of them left. So now they don't have a choice, right? Mm -hmm. You're either going to be an evangelical, which they can't do anymore. Intellectually, they cannot accede to that understanding of the world. Right. Or they're going to be a nun because that middle has disappeared. And that's actually the title I'm kind of pitching out there is like the death of polite Christianity in the future of America. You know, like the idea of like that moderate, you know, even moderate Catholics have sort of gone by the wayside too. Mm. Right. So, you yeah. know, we're kind of confronted with like either you're evangelical or you're a nun and there's really nothing in between. And I think what that's doing is that's leaving a lot of people like us behind because we're trying to hold together these traditions that are like the, the walls are literally crumbling by the minute and we're yeah. trying to hold them together with duct tape, you know, and we're the last, we're literally the last people holding this whole thing together. 
think about what we're going to be in 20 years. Think about what most mainline churches are going to look like in 20 years. They're going to be gone. Objectively, most of them are going to be shells of their former selves, if not completely dissolved at that point. I mean, the Episcopal Church lost half its membership in the last 30 years. Half. They're probably going to lose half again in the next 20 years as they all die off. I mean, Hmm. there's not a good-looking future for people like us, but we're trying to hold together spit and twine and duct tape for as long as we can for the next generation, but they don't want this. They'd rather just go be a nun because it's easier. And I think that's really, it's causing all kinds of like the political polarization we're seeing, economic polarization, cultural polarization, all those polarizations are being made worse because there's religious polarization going on. And these churches that used to have people who are Democrats, Republicans, independents sitting side by side are now all Republicans. Right, exactly. All Democrats and nobody's sitting side by side in the pews anymore. I think it's just creating this terrible caustic society because we've lost this sort of polite Christianity in the middle. Right. So that leads me to 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 the third question. Then, so so what's happening in our context? Why do you think people like yourself and myself um, can't let go of the church? Why can't we let go of? maybe some vestiges of evangelicalism, but can't fully embrace the really progressive stuff where maybe we diminished a resurrection or, or some other elements of, of the historical orthodoxy. Yeah. Um, you know, so many of my friends, my, my peers, people who are like, just like you born 1982, but I have some friends born eighties, late seventies, these sort of things who have sort of left, but they can't give up Jesus. And so they're trying to figure out, how do I be a Christian without being connected to uh, uh, evangelical or uh, really progressive church? And they're trying to, like you said, because they can't really find that sweet spot in the middle. Yeah. Um, what What are we doing? How, what, why are we doing these sort of things? I, I I just say that Jesus still makes sense to me. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I, how, yeah. I don't know, like, like, I don't know, like, if that's like profound or profoundly stupid to say it like so simply like that. But like, I just think that's what. The alternative to me sounds even worse, mm-hmm. which is that this is all nothing. It's like we're ex nihilo, right? We're created out of nothing and we're going to go back. To, like annihilationism is like scary to me, like beyond belief. Right. And at some point I see the beauty in the narrative of the story of Jesus, right? Which is a man who had no sin, took on sin for all of us and died an innocent death on the cross for all of us. And somehow magically, mystically, and by the way, no one really understands how this happened because no one really understands the atonement. There's like people like, you know, you grew up evangelical. There's like one theory of the atonement, right? right? Penal substitutionary atonement is the only way to understand it. It's like, ah, no, there's not. Like there's moral influence theory and there's, you know, there's Christus Victor and there's all these other theories. And it's like, you don't even understand the atonement, you know, like, but I I love the fact that there's a mystery. Like my wife's Catholic. She's Roman Mm -hmm. Catholic, Irish Catholic. And I go to mass with her sometimes. And I love when they say, let's celebrate the mystery of faith. Christ has Mm -hmm. died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. I love that mystery, right? The mysterion, right? The idea that we don't have it all figured out, that there's something out there, but it's at the same level, we don't have it figured out, but it lodges so deep in our souls, right? To use like a term from the matrix, it's like a splinter in our minds Mm -hmm. that we cannot get around the fact that this story has resonated with people for literally 2000 years. Billions of people have been so moved by this story, they will give up all their worldly possessions and everything they have in this life to live a life that is emulating this person that lived in Palestine 2,000 years ago. Like, there's something about that that you cannot 
quantify. You can't explain away. And for me, that is incredibly inspirational, right? Like that, that is the life that I should live by a guy who, you know, spoke a different language and looked differently than me and a completely understand, different understanding right. of the world that I did somehow lived a life that transformed and, and went above everything that we go through, right? Like that is just so, and I'll, here's what I, here's what I love about Jesus. Okay. As soon as we try, as soon as you think you have a good handle on what Jesus is, it's like smoke. If you try to put smoke in your hand and you close your fist, it goes out between your fingers and floats back in the air, right? Like he's everything that you think he is, but at the same point, nothing what you think he is. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty of the faith, right? It's I'll never figure it out. Like I can figure out statistics and I can run models and I can understand the social world to some degree. I will never be able to do that and understand why this idea is still so motivating to literally billions of people around the globe. And I think that speaks to something that's deeply embedded in all of us that we seek mm -hmm. out truth, capital T, truth. Every human being is seeking out truth. And this version of truth, I think makes the most sense for me. And I think it makes the most sense for other people too, but I'm also convinced for some people it makes no sense at all. And I'm not going to force it on them. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But I think that does open the the door to to relationship is still important. Um, we you talk about this in your book about having to listen to the nons and um, these sort of things. And 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 I wrote a a book on a table life, and that's a big aspect of it is the listening, listening to scripture, listening to the stories of others, learning to tell your own story in turn. Uh, then becomes kind of this this back and forth where people can. Uh, say, okay, what, what's making sense and, and why does it make sense to you? And then what's not making sense and kind of hear their stories and realize there's so many things happening there. I mean, there is a lot with uh, the evangelical church, like you said, growing up that that's that we've looked at and we're, we're asking questions about, especially about women in, in ministry or, or just the treatment of women in general uh, and, and other ethnic groups and these sort of things. And and that's so much of the pain that people are carrying with their their experiences. And these are the things that make the news the most. So people who aren't connected to a local church, they see that and, and they don't want to be part of anything like that. But if you have a relationship with them and sometimes like my neighborhood, people know who I am and, and what I'm about. And on Sundays before COVID, we were one of two cars moving in my street. Right. And so um, they're not a neighborhood that's really connected to a local church, um, and, but they know me, and, and it's kind of created opportunity to kind of share that story at a kind of a personal level and, and say just what you explained. Yeah. I just, I can't stop Jesus because he's so, he's everything and um, so powerful and uh, mysterious and hard to understand. And, and, and just when you think you got it figured out, there's a new teaching and you're like, ugh. Well, I, I got to do that too. <laughs> so cool. That's the beauty of it though, right? Like I think yeah. that's the, that's the amazing part of it is we'll never understand it all the way, you know, and, and I forget who it was on their, on their deathbed. They said, you know, what, what was your last words? It goes, now comes the mystery. Ah, yeah. Right. Like, one. you know what I mean? Like even like, I, 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 I cannot embrace the certainty of evangelicalism or like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. Like right. I, I cannot, I cannot intellectually convince myself that's true. I wish it was true and I hope it was true. And I'm doing, my, I'm living my best life trying to make that to be true. But at the end of the day, it's a mystery, right? You know what, how this life ends is a mystery to all of us. And I think that's to me, like, I think what's funny about that is you tell that to some people and it turns them completely off, mm. but other people, it draws them completely in, right? They yeah, love that's that. That's kind of been my experience is, is when, when you're not as certain, 
and you say, there's some things I don't know. And I have questions still. And they're like, well, you're a pastor that, yeah, I am, but I'm, I'm also unsure about some stuff and, mm-hmm. and it helps them uh, be more comfortable around me. I think. Yeah. yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about um, the book. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't have to go into a lot of detail. Yeah. Uh, we're going to encourage people to, to purchase it. Um, you can get it wherever books are sold. Amazon and variety of other places, um, but um, just real brief the yeah. the two minute version. Yeah, so the book's called "The Nuns: Where They Came From, Who They Are, Where They're Going." Basically, a deep statistical dive and all the survey data that's basically available out there, you know, publicly. Everything I use in the book is publicly available data, so you could actually check all this stuff that right. I did. Um, it's just a, a deep exploration of the religiously unaffiliated in America, um, how, some potential causes for why they've risen from five percent to twenty five percent. And sort of from 1972 to 2018, actually, it's probably higher than that now. It's probably over 30%, depending on how you want to measure it. Um, and I dig into things like secularization, the breakdown of the family, the internet. Um, and then I kind of look at, you know, the nuns by gender, by race, by education, um, you know, by politics, right? And, and, and the, fa- the fact of the matter is you, a group cannot become 30% of the population and be all the same thing, right? right? So the conception that you have in your head of the nuns being like, an atheist, you know, philosophy professor quoting Nietzsche, you know, with like a ton of income and a ton of education is just not, not it. In fact, most nuns are a group called nothing in particular. And only 20% of that group has a college degree, a four-year college degree. Like they're the least educated group in America today. Um, 60% of them make less than $50,000 a year. So like, this is not what you have in your head when you think of nuns, it's the opposite of what they are. And, you know, in the book, I kind of tell the story of like the nothing in particular is this really interesting group because they're, they're the most reachable group too. Um, atheist agnostics hardly ever come back to faith over a four-year period of time, but about one in five, nothing in particular come back to a Christian faith over a four-year period of time. So you think about it, that's 20% of 20% of the population. So that's 4% of America is coming back to church over a four-year period of time, that's the group to reach out to. I wrote a piece of the Gospel Coalition saying like, stop debating atheists. Like it's a waste of time. Right. Like, like the nothing in particulars are really where where you are going to have such a better return on investment because they're much more just receptive to the message of the church. So really, that's kind of what the book's about is like trying to change your like sharpen your perception of what the nuns are, but also sort of give you some strategies or some ideas to think about for churches to reach out to these groups that are much more amenable to hearing about church. Yeah. So I, I found found the book very, very helpful. Actually, had had read it uh a couple of weeks before I even knew that you were doing this seminar with the American Baptist last week and um, was grateful I get to meet you now. And so um, that one of the interesting conclusions that I, I think that you draw for us is just the demographic of the nun, right? So you, mm-hmm. you talk about how they're just not terribly enthusiastic about a lot of things, right? They're not uh, a big um, into politics. They don't put up signs. They don't necessarily go and vote as, as, as often. Um, they don't give the charitable causes as much or have causes in general. Um, uh, the financial thing you just mentioned, they're a little bit lower income demographic. And then also, um, uh, what was a shoot? What was the other? Oh, Income's the low, education's low, Elder not education. politically active. In so, every so way, they're disengaged. Yeah. Right. So disengaged, that's a great word. So my mm-hmm. question then is, is do you think this is why the nuns have been so easily forgotten by our large 
machines that make up the institutional church because they are looking for people who are really engaged, who want to give a lot of money, who have a lot of volunteer time, who are very passionate about a cause to be leaders inside of an institution. And when you see a nun demographic who's kind of disengaged just as a personality type almost, they're like, well, we can just let that go. Yes. Interesting question. So I think that you're, you're exactly right there, right? In terms of like, they don't have a, like a spokesperson for the nuns, right? Like there's right. no, there, there are like the American atheists and stuff, which are sure. you know, organizations that exist, but really only exist for a very small sliver of a very small sliver of the population. Like they don't okay. represent hardly any of the nuns, right? It's like saying the American Baptists speak for all of Protestant Christianity. <laughs> like that's really the equivalent. No. Um, they, they don't, you know, like they're, they're, they're just a very weird, to be honest with you, the American atheists are a very weird subset of the okay. nuns who are, I think in some ways, not at all representative of what the nuns are as a whole, because the nuns are this amorphous, unorganized, disorganized, disaffected, you know, a series of islands really. Sure. You know, that are like just kind of all over the place. Uh, and they don't, and the thing is like, even when I talk to reporters, like, well, if I were to talk to a nothing in particular, how would I find one? And I'm like, I have no idea. You know, right. like you can't even like, there's not even a directory on Facebook of like the nothing in particulars or, yeah. or what, whatever, you know what I mean? They don't exist in, in, in a, in a contactable way, except on surveys. So really what they're defined by is what they're not right. Like they're, they're none of the above and they're, they're sort of just checked out. Like, I think that's the best word to like describe them is just checked out from American society and they feel left behind by American life uh, in every possible education didn't work for them. You know, the, the economic system didn't work for them. The church didn't work for them. Politics don't work for them, right? They just don't feel like they feel like left out, left behind, lost on, on their own. And they're really, I think they're the groups that are like struggling the most with a changing American society. And they're sort of being left behind by like globalization left this group behind. They're the people who would work at a factory 30 or 40 years ago and make a decent middle-class wage, you know, not be rich, but not be poor, kind of screwed along and do fine. But unfortunately, the kind of jobs that they're really equipped for, they don't exist in America anymore. And if they do, they're paying half what they paid 20 or 30 years ago, right? So they're economically just struggling, socially struggling, culturally struggling, spiritually struggling. And the Listen, atheists and agnostics are not struggling. Let's just call it what it is. They're they're doing fine educationally, income wise. Right. Politics has become their religion for many of them. They're doing okay. I, I think just from like a, a care perspective, like a pastoral sure. care perspective, the nothing in particulars are doing a lot worse um, in terms of everything. And the church actually, I think, could probably give them more benefits socially, culturally economically and in every possible way than they could ever give to atheists or agnostics, even if atheists or agnostics would be willing to take those benefits, they would yeah. benefit from them less right. than the nothing in particulars would. So I think it's a, really, it's kind of a perfect arrangement in that way. They're more receptive and they would get a bigger benefit. Like, yeah, that's good on all, on all, all dimensions. So do you think the idea of community, like church, church as community is, is one of those big benefits for, a group that feels so disaffiliated. I mean, are, are there ways to, um, you know, maybe bring them into just the social activities of the life of a congregation um, first? That's kind of the gateway, you know, um, we're going to have this potluck, y'all come, and you don't have to give them a pitch or a sell or anything. You just do that or like a, a sports league or insert activity here. I mean, are, are they, do you think this is a good way to kind of reach some nuns? 
that's the, that's the advice I've been giving everybody recently is that churches need to be churches need to be more focused on the social dimension of church and a little bit less yeah. focused on the the spiritual dimension at church, which I think is kind of counter to the way that a lot of pastors have been sort of trained up in seminaries because it's all about theology there and sure. spirituality, evangelism, and all those kind of things. This is sort of the opposite of that, right? Saying like, let's put that way at the end of the priority list and let's just get people in the door and and do social, you know, do social stuff with them, right? In terms of have a barbecue, have a picnic, have a, a horseshoe tournament or a bags tournament. You know, we call it cornhole around here, right? Just yeah. get people to the church property and just let them hang out with no, with no tracks and no right. preaching and no praise and worship music and no contact cards being handed, you know, like, please fill out this card so we can barrage you with emails and phone calls for the next six years, right? Like cut all that stuff out and just say, especially in a co- post COVID world mm-hmm. where we're, I think we're all dying for socialization, yeah, like give, give, let the church create space to make that happen. And the most important thing is no strings attached space for things like that to happen where the people there don't feel like they've like they're, they have to do anything except come bring their kids, bring themselves, enjoy them, enjoy the time together. And then if they want to come back, then that's great. But I think what people forget is a lot of people come to church for the wrong reasons and stay for the right reasons. You know, like they come for a girl or a boy or because they had free food or because they had a giveaway or whatever it is, but then they end up staying for, you know, the spiritual things, the Jesus stuff keeps them around, but like give them an easy, make the on-ramp easy. You know, don't make it a huge yeah. jump, make it a smooth transition. So I think especially in the summer, you know, it's a perfect time to do all this stuff, especially as we want to do out, go and be more social. And plus outside with COVID is obviously, you know, safer for everyone. Do some stuff outside. A lot yeah. of churches have big lawns. Use those lawns, not just to look pretty, but to, you know, to do good work and build these community bridges, which I think are so incredibly important right now. Yeah, that's great. Appreciate that. So um, what's next for you then? Uh, you mentioned that you're doing a lot of writing. You're still doing a lot of uh, growing and kind of the uh, how to create amazing graphs and, and statistical um, yeah. images that help us understand what you're observing. You know, what's, what's next for you? Uh, books coming out in March, March of 2022, uh, called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. Okay. And it's going to be like 10 uh, relig- like kind of more religion on the, on the religion side and 10 more on the political side, but just, you know, like little 2000 word chapters with a couple graphs, just sort of like debunking a lot of stuff that people believe yeah. about religion and politics that are just flat out wrong. Um, and, you know, the data, like today I even tweeted one out kind of sneak peek, which was that people who go to college, young people who go to college are actually um, no more likely to be religiously unaffiliated than people who don't go to college. Like the whole idea of like college makes you, you know, like a a heathen or a heretic, right? Like that's a myth. Like that doesn't happen. So like, you know, like 20, like little things like that, that you can take away in most chapters you can read in probably like 10 or 15 minutes. And, you know, you can use them in your sermons. You can, you know, talk about them in Bible study or books. I think I should be a really good, like book study book. Cause then you're like, wow, we didn't know this. Um, And then like political stuff too. I'm trying to be, you know, I'm trying to, to like things like um, evangelicals care at least as much about immigration as they do about abortion today. Yeah. Like, like it motivates their vote just as much. Like the whole idea of like they're pro-life voters is sort of a myth. Um, white evangelical Republicans are actually Republicans on every measure now, you know, even on economic stuff. The whole idea was like, oh, they vote for social issues, but they're really not economically conservative. That's not true. They're okay. just as economically conservative as a Republican is who's not an evangelical. So just a bunch of stuff that I hear people say that I'm like, that's not true. Yeah. You know, like stop believing things that are just statistically untrue. And a lot of it's going to just be, you know, trying to like bust, bust your worldview, 
right? And make you think bigger about other things going on in the world. And that book, like I said, I'm in, I'm about two thirds of the way done with it and it should be, it's going, it's due by August and it should come out in print by March, uh, Fortress Press, same press I use for the nuns. That's cool, man. That's great. Thank you. So um, how can we as American Baptist partner with you? I know we're in different regions, um, Mm -hmm. but uh, we're, we're here to support, you know, good ministry. You're clearly got things going on uh, in addition to the local church that we benefit from as American Baptists uh, across the country, uh, you know, like your book and, and other things. So how can we partner with you? I mean, it sounds so weird, but get the word out about the nuns. I think that's yeah. like, I know it like, fi- like materially benefits me, but I also think it materially benefits the church though, too. Like in yeah, terms of like, you know, like it's, it's, you want to see what the battlefield actually looks like without all the fog and the smoke and all the, you know, the disinformation that goes on. I just think, and I'm more than happy to jump on. And I did the thing, you know, last week with the American Baptist and like, there was like 150 people that jumped on that call. Yeah. Um, I, I love doing that stuff. And plus with Zoom, it's just so easy to set up something and schedule and you don't have to worry about travel and, you know, mask and airplanes yep. and all that kind of stuff. Like I am more than happy to help your region out. I'm happy to come do a talk too. If you'd like that, I can yeah. do a whole workshop and, you know, kind of go into more depth, but you know, I just want to get the word out of the nuns. Cause I feel like I have, God has gifted me with these two really weird sort of skills that I think can benefit the kingdom, also benefit the academic world, right? Which I think right. is really important, but also benefit the kingdom. And I want to use my gifts and talents to help other churches and other pastors at least understand the world around them and 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 behave strategically, understanding the world in a clearer way. So however I can help, you know, if you want me to come do a talk, if you want me to do a Zoom, if you want me to do whatever, I'm more than happy to come uh, and do that for your region or your church or, or whatever you're involved with. I would just love to, to help you help me help you, you know? Very cool. Well, for those listening to the podcast, um, we are going to put Ryan's contact information and his website and all those kind of links so that you can get a hold of him. Uh, there'll be links to the book and, and so you can go purchase that and then, um, information to his website so that you can contact him at your leisure. So, uh, Ryan, thanks so much for being on mission in five, the podcast. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for downloading and streaming the latest episode of Mission in 5. Keep tuning in as we introduce you to the ministry practitioners engaging in God's mission through the local church in Nebraska and around our larger American Baptist community. Check out the show notes for contact information and links to our various guests. Subscribe to the podcast in whatever platform you like. Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, TuneIn, Google Play. We're in all the platforms. Whichever one you use, be sure to rate and review us so we know how you're enjoying the podcast. Send us ideas on who you'd like us to interview for future episodes. And feel free to support us through our abcnebraska.com PayPal link. Thanks, everybody, and have a great day.